good afternoon. Welcome to Good Friday. My name is Don, and I'm the executive pastor here at River Glen. In other words, that might give you a hint to how often that I uh, give a message here. I, I came on board a little over a year ago after 25 years in the business world. And here at River Glen, my main role is to kind of help guide the staff and oversee the day-to-day -day operations of the church. So when Ben first asked me to give the message, I said, sure. I go, that sounds great. I jumped at the chance. I mean, I've run seminars. How hard could writing a message be? Yeah, I know. Well, I went home that day and I told my wife that Ben had asked me to give the message. And obvious, the obvious answer or question was, was when? And before I tell you what I told her, let me tell you, being in business, you don't get to go to a lot of Good Friday services. There's very few that I actually went to. And so when she asked, the only Friday that I could think of that was an important day for somebody in business is, can you guess what I told her? Yeah, again, I know. I said Black Friday message. I knew I wasn't given the Friday after Thanksgiving message. I knew it was called Good Friday, but my conditioning kind of led me to call it Black Friday. Matter of fact, over the next couple months, as staff members said, hey, I heard you're giving the message, and I said, yeah, on Black Friday. In emails, it was Black Friday. To Ben, it was Black Friday. Ben thought it was funny for a while, and then after a while, not so much. But let me tell you, as I prepared this message, I started to, to question why we even call it a Good Friday. You see, in business, Black Friday is a good thing. But today, Good Friday, why would anyone call it a Good Friday? I don't know about you, but for me, Easter kind of brought in some mixed feelings. When I was really little and I didn't understand, I was kind of torn between getting excited about an Easter basket full of candy and a little freaked out about a seven-foot rabbit that might be coming in my house over the weekend. But as I grew older and I started to understand more about today and more about uh, Easter, I struggled as I started to realize what happened to Christ. And I spent that entire week feeling so bad about what he went through. And Easter became more of a time of sorrow and guilt. And as I prepared the message, I asked my wife about her Good Friday experience and what she went through. And she said it was even worse in her house. Um, her parents had spent the entire day gathering the kids and making sure that they stayed in the house. No TV, no music, no phones. And for younger people, that was even a big deal back then. Um, it was a serious day in their house, no fun zone. They basically mourned as a family. And this was pretty normal back then. This, was un this wasn't unique. Matter of fact, I called my parents the other day, and I just asked them what their experience was, and they said the same thing. They were gathered into the house, and uh, they were told to be quiet and not really talk. And most of you might even remember, we used to close down banks and businesses between 12 and 3 o'clock. So it wasn't just families that mourned. It was entire communities that mourned. And they were mourned because they remembered what happened on this day, and they were giving their due respects. And maybe it's been a week of mourning for you as well, and today has been tough. As you think back on what today represents, and maybe even have a little bit of guilt as you think about what happened to Christ and the cost of him dying on the cross. Maybe for your, because of your conditioning, today is not a good Friday, but it's a black Friday. And maybe it's a dark Friday. And I get that, because anything that happened on that day, there was nothing good about it. But it wasn't just a Black Friday, it was also an unjust Friday. You see, Christ was morally perfect. He was in a whole other league than anyone who had ever lived before. He never told a lie. He never looked at another man's wife. He was the son of God, and yet he had no pride. If anybody could have had a little pride, wouldn't you give that to Jesus? Wouldn't you think he could have had a little pride? But there was nothing that you could accuse him of. There was no record of breaking any laws, committing treason, harming any person. 
Jesus did nothing to be arrested that night, but that didn't stop the temple guards. You see, after Judas betrayed Jesus, they didn't take him directly to the cross. Instead, they immediately took him through six trials. They were all carried out on that Friday in, in the early mornings at between 2 a.m. and about 10 a.m., and eight furious hours, they, pu they pushed him through these trials. Now, having a trial for a capital crime at night was actually illegal, but that didn't stop them. They wasted no time, probably because what they knew they were doing was wrong. And when I read this, I wondered, if it was illegal, why didn't they just wait till morning? Why not make sure it was done right? Make no mistakes. Make sure that they get the conviction. But then it hit me. They knew the whole arrest was wrong. They were looking to quickly justify their actions. And isn't that just like, like you and me? When we're thinking about doing something that we know that we shouldn't be doing, we hurry up and do it before our good sense tells us not to. We know if we stopped and we thought it through, we might not get to do what we really want to do. We might not get to do what we really plan to do. Well, this is exactly what the religious leaders were doing. They quickly rushed Jesus through those six trials. Three of those trials were religious. They were Jewish. And three were civil with the Romans. The three Jewish trials, you would think they would have had Jesus' back. These are the people that he might be able to count on. But he couldn't. Uh, they proclaimed Jesus a sinner. They charged him of blasphemy. And then they turned him over to the Romans, and they wanted them to execute Jesus. And the reason why is they had no authority to be able to do that. But the Romans went ahead and they had their three more trials. And guess what? In all three, they found him not guilty. But in the end, though they had no cause, they convicted Jesus. Pilate still turned him over to the Jews to be crucified. There were no basis for his arrest, a conviction, or his punishment. And that unjust Friday kind of led to a bloody Friday. It was bloody from the time that he, he first started the trials until he took his last breath. But before Pilate turned Jesus over to the mob, he wanted to make one last plea to have Jesus released. Not because he cared about Jesus, not because he was worried, but he didn't want that pressure put onto him. He didn't want to look like the person that was making that decision. So he thought if he beat Jesus badly enough, the religious leaders would be satisfied, and maybe they'd drop their trumped-up charges. But as we know, that didn't happen. They not only beat him with their fists, they flogged him. And flogged him could be the most brutal part of a crucifixion process. The prisoner would be stretched out over a pillar on the ground with his hands fastened to it. And he would stretch him out his entire back. And they would take a whip called a cat of nine tails. And it had little pieces of bone and metal and glass. And on the ends of it, they attached it to that cat of nine tails. And they would whack the cat of nine tails across the backs of the victim. Tearing away chunks of skin muscle, and in even organs. Seven out of ten people never even made it to the crucifixion because of the severity of the flogging. Jesus was beaten literally within an inch of his life. It was also an ugly Friday, but not just because of the blood and the beatings. It showed the ugliest side of humanity. Jesus was naked and stripped of all human dignity. It wasn't enough just physically beat him and flog him before his crucifixion. They wanted to humiliate him as well. Matthew describes the scene. And chapter 27, then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and they mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and they took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again. 
The ancient historian Josephus, Josephus calls the crucifixion the most wretched death. Matter of fact, Cicero declared that Roman citizens weren't even allowed to talk about or even think about the cross because it was altogether so horrific for any Roman, a decent Roman citizen. Crucifixion was reserved for the most evil and shameful criminals. It was used on those who committed treason and those who uh, posed threats to the empire. It was used on criminals who were considered second-class citizens, such as slaves and foreigners. Those who were cru crucified were generally considered the lowest of the low socially. You see, they just didn't want to kill him and humiliate him. They wanted everyone to know that he wasn't a king. He wasn't a religious leader. He wasn't a righteous man. And they wanted him to be known as a criminal. And really what they were after is they didn't want him to be known for his name. You see, people didn't have pity on those that were crucified. They didn't mourn them. The, the perception was that if a person was crucified, they deserved it. They got what was coming to them. And this is why everyday citizens would mock them and spit on them as they went to the cross. So on that day, they marched Christ through the city like a criminal with a 60-pound crossbeam hoisted onto his back. They forced him to carry the instrument of his own torture and his execution. He was beaten so badly that he couldn't even carry the cross alone, and they had to get somebody from the crowd to help him carry it up to the top of the hill outside the city to the place of his execution. They took Jesus and they nailed him to the cross, driving spikes through his hands and through his feet, and then they hoisted him up against the sky. It says in John 19, 19 through 20, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Notice Pilate posted it in every language. Pilate was so contemptuous, saying, this would be your king of the Jews. He wanted to make sure that everyone knew that this is your king now. Look where he's at right now. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, they all mocked him. They told him, Sa you saved others, why can't you save yourself? It was the ugliest of Fridays. As, one of the, as the one who came to save them rejected and they, and they turned on him. And that rejection led to a very lonely Friday. You see, only one week earlier, Jesus sat on a young donkey and he slowly and humbly made his triumphal um, entrance into the city of Jerusalem. Only one week earlier, the crowds welcomed him by waving palm branches in the air and they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Only one week earlier, they saw Jesus as their Savior. Where were they now? Where were they now? Jesus' disciples and close friends spent the better part of three years with him. They saw him walk on water, heal the sick, and even raise the dead. They saw and felt the love of Jesus personally and saw the effect on others. They said they were in this till the very end and that they would do anything for Christ. They even argued who'd be the greatest in God's kingdom. But when Jesus tells Peter that he'll deny him, Peter probably puffed up his chest and it was quoted, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And then the throwaway part of the verse, it says, and the rest of the disciples said the same. Peter always gets a rap of proudly saying, I won't deny you, I won't deny you, and then turning around and doing it. But you know what? It says the others did the same. They did the same thing. They said they were ready to die for him. Nothing can separate them from their Savior. But as Jesus hung on the cross... Where were they now? Jesus was reject, rejected by his hometown, his own family, 
Every one of them scattered except John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. In Matthew, it says, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. When we hear this, we think, how could they do that? I wouldn't do that. If I was there and I saw all the things that Jesus did, I would never, ever do that. But not knowing what's coming on Sunday, would we? Would we really do that? Can you imagine in one week, you go from everyone loving you, cheering you, following you, wherever you go, and the next minute everybody bails. They have no faith, no hope, and no trust in you whatsoever. The one person Jesus always could count on, though, was his father. But as Jesus comes to the end of his life, Mark reports this. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three, three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, though he was perfect and never did anything wrong to anybody, there on the cross, Jesus bore the burden and the blame for all the lies, all the betrayal, and all the immorality that had ever committed in the history of the world. Not just what was in the past, but what was in the future. He endured the suffering for those who gossiped, those who slandered, and those who indulged in material things. He took the brunt of their punishment for the murderers, the drug dealers, the prostitutes, the terrorists, the rapists, corrupt Wall Street investment bankers, and for me, for all that I've done, and for you, for all that you've done. He suffered so that no one would have to be separated from God. In John 3, 16, the most memorized scripture in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In that moment, he was bearing on himself your sin and my sin, our guilt and our shame. I found that hard to understand, but then I saw someone explain it like this. There's a, a verse in the Old Testament that prophesied the death of Jesus in Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On an Alpha course, I heard Nikki Gumbel uh, explain it like this. Let this hand represent you and me and the bad stuff that separates us from God. We all are, are like sheep and we've gone astray and each of us has turned to our own way. And let this, re this hand represent Jesus. Jesus never did anything wrong. There was nothing that separated him from his father. And when God looked down at Jesus, he just saw his righteousness. And the verse says, the cross the Lord had laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. He was bearing my guilt, my shame, and my sin on the cross. And he made an exchange and then Nikki said, where does that leave you? And I looked and I could see that that left me to be able to have a relationship with God and that God was looking at me through the same lens that he had looked at Jesus. You see, Jesus was exiled from the Father so that I didn't have to be. So how is it a day with such evil and pain even get the name Good Friday? Because it's a love story of a father. How many of your fathers raise your hands? Mothers, go ahead and raise your hands, too. And if you're not a parent, you have parents, and imagine your parents. You know, when you become a dad, you're really excited, and you want to tell everybody. And you run around, and you're showing pictures, and as your kids get older, you know, you kind of forget about some of the bad stuff, but you tell everybody about the good stuff that goes on with your kid. And I see your Facebook post. You know, everybody wants to brag on their kids. 
I want you to put yourself in this story. This is your son. This is your boy. This is your only child. Imagine all that we've talked about today, the undressed treatment of your son, the bloody condition of his body, the ugliness and the hurt thrown on him, and the fact that he was alone through all of this. Wouldn't you do everything within your power to deliver healing to him and deliverance to him? I would. And just at that moment, when his father could save, or just, just as Jesus was running away from death, and just as he gets to the other side, his father's arms are stretched out, and he sees his boy. And just at that moment when the father could have saved his life, he pulled back. And he said, I can't do it. I'm able, but I'm not going to. That's the story. That's God's love story. That Jesus was exiled from his father so that we wouldn't have to be. And when I think about that, and I think about the gospel, and I think about Good Friday, I'm reminded of the magnitude of your sin and mine. And there is nobody in this room today who is not struggling with some sin. And there are plenty of people in this room that are still trying to recover from the last sin, that last great sin. And most of the people in the room are wondering if God's love could be so great that he would actually forgive them for the sin that they're committing right now. That sin, you know, the one that you just can't seem to get a handle on? And for you, I need you to know it's a good Friday. It's where we're reminded how serious our sin really is, that God would step back as a father and allow his son to die and to suffer. And then the magnitude of his love, that he would know the best way to communicate that to us and communicate the depth of his love to us because if God really wanted to show his, the depth of his love he had for us, what's the best way to do that? It's to give away what matters the most, your own child. It's brilliant in the mind of God. It's why the cross is still the most recognizable symbol in the world. I love the verse, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. He sent his son in this while we were still in our sin. That is a love story. That's why even though we're sad, we know that Sunday is coming. And we know without the cross, you and I would be left in our sins. And for some of you, you struggle to experience the joy of Christian living because you still think that God accepts you on the basis of how good you are. And you'll never have joy until you realize that he loves you based, based on what his son did on the cross for you. And you're forgiven past, future, and present sins. I promise you, when you get that, he will not be hard work. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He'll be a pleasure to you. And you'll thank him for that grace and you'll worship him for that grace. It's almost too good to be true. And isn't a love story, isn't it almost too good to be true? Now, when you came in, there was a card sitting on your chairs. If you want to pick those up, it's entitled, How He Loves. I want you to take out that card and grab a pen. And I want you to write on that line, what's in your life that shouldn't be? And for everybody, if we're really honest, there's something that's been in your life that you've been battling and you've been losing. And you just can't seem to get a hold of it. And maybe you've started to believe that God doesn't love you because you don't measure up. Write that on the line. 
I'm going to write one as well. And if you don't have a pen and you're worried that someone might see what you're writing, I, I get that. Envision what needs to be on that line. Why don't you go ahead and write that now? And in a minute, we're going to share communion, the bread which represents the body of Christ and the juice which represents the blood that was shed for you and for me. And this is what I'd like you to do. After I pray, I'm going to invite you up towards the stage and set up some communion tables. And before you come up, I want you to do this. I want you to rip up that card. And let that be an image that there is nothing that separates you between you and God. Not the sin that you wrote down or the sin that you're battling. I want you to remember that exchange was made for you. And as you come up for communion, I want you to bring the pieces of that card. And I want you to dump them into the baskets. And I want you to exchange it for a piece of white cloth that represents how God sees you now. We're going to go ahead and pray. Lord, as we come together to share in communion the bread that represents his broken body and the juice, his blood that was shed that day on the cross, we realize the gravity of our sin and the sacrifices that was paid. We know that we've done nothing to deserve your grace. And yet on that day, you gave up what you valued most to show the depth of your love to us. And because of that sacrifice, we're free to come to you and be in a relationship with you. Thank you, God, for loving us where we are right now and we thank you for your son, and it's in his name we pray, amen. You can come forward and start to take communion.